So we're going to start with chapter 14, which I think is where we uh, left off. Uh, ready to start that? I want to, uh, this is called class participation. So I want to review with you, because this is really, really important that you get this, because this governs the rest of Scripture. The Abrahamic covenant first stated by the Lord in uh, chapter 12. It will be restated in chapter 15, restated in chapter 17. It's going to keep being restated again and again and again. What are the three parts? What are the three promises God made to him? Land. Land. Seed. Seed, which means all of his descendants. Blessing. Blessing. Okay, good. One of you is getting it. Now, the rest of you, if you don't have this, you must get it. It's, God won't let you into heaven if you don't know <laughs> No, I'm just kidding. But uh, it's just, if you must keep remembering this. Uh, that's a silly way to put it. You must have this in front of you always when you're studying uh, the book of John. And as a matter of fact, really, to, to study the whole Old Testament. Uh, it's just, it's, it's the key element to making the Old Testament come together. <clears throat> so... If you have that map, Abram and Canaan next to you, because this this chapter is a chapter that's got a lot of very difficult names in it, but there are a couple place names that I think you should be familiar with, and and that would be great if you have that, okay? All right, now, um, let's review something that happened in chapter 13. In chapter 13, remember the focus now is Abram. The focus is Abram had not trusted the Lord and had gone down into Egypt, had misrepresented things, but he leaves Egypt an even wealthier man than he left, uh, excuse me, than he entered Egypt. And at that time, he is a nomad. Abraham is a nomad. Well, what I mean by that is Abraham is, is someone who takes the flocks that he has, you know, the, uh, the, a lot of camels, but the herds of sheep and goats and so on, and that's how wealth was measured in much of the ancient world. So Abraham is a very wealthy man. With him is his nephew Lot. And in chapter 13, they divide, remember that? They divide their herd, they, if you will, their measurable wealth. And God, or Abraham said to Lot, whichever you choose, I'll go the opposite direction. If you choose to the east, I'll go to the west. You choose so and so what Lot does is Lot chooses the lush, rich Jordan Valley. Remember that? I hope you remember that. And so in terms of your, your map, again, Abraham and Canaan, it would be on the east side of the Jordan River, the Jordan Valley. He, it's a lush, rich area, and it went all the way down to the very southern part of the Dead Sea, or what the Bible calls the Salt Sea or the Sea of Arabah. It doesn't call it the Dead Sea. And so that's where Lot is. Abraham chooses what uh, God had promised him the land of Canaan, the hills, the valleys, etc. of Canaan. And and that's basically where we leave it. So in chapter 14, if you don't understand these next two sentences, you're not going to understand what is really important in terms of the point of chapter 14. Chapter 14 describes the Jordan Valley is invaded by a group of kings from the east. Now, if you look at verse 1, in the days of Amphrafel, king of Shinar, you remember enough from Genesis 11 and 12, where's Shinar? 
Nobody, nobody remembers another. <laughs> Shinar is that plain around Babylon. It's in the southern Mesopotamian valley. It's where the Tigris and Euphrates come together. So that we know most of these names of these kings, we do not know who they are. There are no, uh, one of them there is, but there are no extra-biblical references to these. But the places, we do know exactly where they are. Do you understand what I just said? So, in these days, Amparaphel, um, uh, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Elazar, Keteleomer, king of Elam, the title king of Golim, Goim, these kings made war with Barak, king of Sodom, Birsha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemember, king of Jeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zor. Now, what does that mean? It means that the kings from the Mesopotamian Valley, rulers from the Mesopotamian Valley, move into the Jordan Valley. What are they interested in? Conquering this area and then making them pay tribute to them. Do you understand? This was a very typical thing in the ancient world. This was a very common thing. We have zillions of these in the archaeological records. Because your goal was to expand your holdings so that the more land you have, the more areas you they're always paying an annual tribute to your treasury. You got it? So that's what's going on here. And all these forces, verse 3, join forces in the Valley of Sidim, that is the Salt Sea. Now, if you look on this map, you have to look really, really carefully but you can see it if you can find you're in the southern part of the map. If you can find Horites or Amorites, Arabah, you'll see in italics the Valley of Sidim. You see that? This is the very southern, this is a very southern tip, the southern part of the Dead Sea region, or the Sea of Salt, as the Bible calls it, or the Sea of Arabite. Never calls it the Dead Sea. Okay, so this is the battle there. Okay, and that means they win. That is, these kings from the east win. Twelve years they had served Ketaliomer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. All right, verses 1 and 2 tells us these kings from the east conquered the valley where Lot lived, not Abram. And all of these areas in the Jordan Valley are now paying an annual tribute to the eastern king. How long did this go on? Twelve years. In the thirteenth year, what did they decide to do? Stop paying tribute. They rebelled. Now, why? We don't know. Sometimes when the geopolitical things change, you make the decision. Because if you, when you study the Old Testament, both the Israel kingdom of the north and the Judah kingdom of the south, they're constantly being attacked and invaded and paying tribute to either Egypt or Syria or whatever. And when there's a weakening of the kingdom and you're paying tribute, they're weak. I don't have to stop. I don't have to pay to them anymore. And so that's what's going on. So whatever reason, they stop paying. So they rebel. So in the 14th year, verse 5, Ketaliomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated. And I'm not going to read all those names. It doesn't matter. You're not going to recognize them. But this whole area, Ketaliomer and all of his armies come back to the Jordan Valley and invaded again. Verse 7, then they turned back and came to En Mishpat. That is Kadesh, if you're interested in it. That's Kadesh, Kadesh Barnea. It's right here. So that's how far they've gone. These kings way over in the east. So they've now conquered this entire value, even pushed south. Verse 8. 
And the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, the king of Belazur went out. They joined battle in the valley of Sedim with Ketaliomer. It gives all those names. Verse 10. Now the valley of Sedim was full of bitumen pits. What's bitumen? It's uh, metal, isn't it? Yeah, uh, it's got a metal base to it. Yeah. It's tar-like oil. Oh, yeah. I so, I mean, this is, you know... There's oil in this part of the world, you know, so the bitumen pits. Now, that was really important because they used bitumen in making their building. That was like the mortar. That was like what kept the bricks together. That may have been, it's just telling us that's one of the reasons they're there. The bitumen is valuable. They're not drilling for oil. That's not what they use to make gas to fuel their cars. Those things haven't been invented yet. You know that. I'm being funny. Nobody's laughing. You don't even know what I'm saying. I'm just telling you, it's just giving us information what they're interested in. And as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them. The rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah, all their provisions, and went their way. Verse 12 is the most important verse as it relates to Abram. They also took Lot, Abram's, the son of Abram's brother, his nephew, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions, and went their way. This is why this is important. This kind of thing that we just read in these 12 verses is going on all the time in the ancient world. And so you sit back and say, well, why is this important? Verse 12 is reason it's important. They kidnapped Lot, his family, all his possessions. So this is why it becomes important. Now, Abraham is going to have to decide, what am I going to do? My nephew Lot, who is part of this important promise God made, land, seed, and blessing. He's a part of this group that's going to be blessed. Del verse 13, very important verse. Then the one who had escaped came and told Abraham, or Abram, the Hebrew. That's the first time the term Hebrew is used in the Bible. So now you have an ethnic identification that is going to go with Abram. He is a Hebrew, the father of the Hebrews who was living in the Oaks of Mamre, the Amorite brother of Eshkol and Anor. They were allies of Abram. Now, we learned that at the end of chapter 13, because that's where he settled. That's where he pitched his tent. So what does Abram do? Now, the picture here of Abram is a man of courage and a man of faith. Because his nephew, part of his family, his brother's, his brother's son has been kidnapped. All the wealth has been taken. His family has been taken. His children has been taken. What's he going to do? Let him go away? So what he does, it tells us in verse 14, when Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in the house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. Now, I want you, I want you to see how far this is. Now, down here is where the Valley of Sedim is. This is roughly where Lot lived. If you look in this little box, this whole area is the possible location of Sodom, Gomorrah, all those other cities. So Dan is way up on the very northern end of your map. If you don't know the direction, the very top of your map. It's way up there. At this time, it was called Laish, L-A-I-S-H. But it, that's how far he's going to go. So it tells us 
he pursues these guys, the armies of Ketaleomer, who have kidnapped Lot and all the, the family and so on. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. That's off the map. That's farther north. And he brought back all the possessions. He brought back his kinsmen Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. So Abram is successful in rescuing his nephew, his family, and all his possessions for Ketaleomer. Doesn't explain the battle, doesn't detail the battle, doesn't explain how they did it, just says one thing, he's successful. This is is amazing courage, quite frankly, because he's a nomad. But he has these men that are a part of his his servants, a part of everybody that's a part of his massive, uh, massive clan of people, and brings Lot back. Then something happens which is extraordinarily important. In many ways, what happens in verse 17 through the end of the chapter, chapter 14, is one of the most important passages in the entire book of Genesis, and indeed it is crucial for the whole part of the the argument of the Bible. Because we're introduced to this mysterious man called Melchizedek. And he's important. He's mentioned in Psalm 110. And he is mentioned several times in Hebrews, the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 5, Hebrews chapter 6, Hebrews chapter 7. So we're gonna, now I'm going to slow down because what, what I want to do with 17 through the end of the chapter is really important. I want to make a lot of connections with the rest of the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. But before we do that, now I went through this quickly. Are you with me? Do you understand? Anything you want to add? What I wanted you to get is why in the world would, would Moses, who wrote this, tell us all about Kettle and all these guys? Because they kidnap Lot. That's the reason it's important. A sidebar, just has nothing to do with the text, but Dan, that city called Laish at the time of Abraham, 4,000 years ago, there, the, 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 uh, the archaeological digs around Dan have been incredibly valuable. Because that's where uh, Jeroboam, who led the rebellion against Solomon, he built an altar up there. He built a whole temple of worship. We found that. Whenever I take my trips, I always take people to that. It's a magnificent sight to see. But there's something else they discovered there. They discovered the ancient city of Laish, and they discovered the gate to that city. It's the oldest city gate ever found in human history. It's 4,000 years old. And it is a magnificent thing to see. Uh, because you, you get it, and Abram would have walked through that gate. I mean, it's really, you, you, I mean, I, I can just imagine it now. I've been there so many times. My, up and down the back of my spine, I'm getting all serious because it's just, it's, it's really something to see that because it is so old, but there's absolutely no question uh, what, what the importance of this is. So Abram comes back. He works his way back from way up north there and starts to come back. In verse 17, after his return from the defeat of Ketaleomer and the kings were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Sheva. Now, you, ha- you can find that. It's very easy. Now, you can see this route that Abraham followed, these dotted lines and so on. If you look very carefully, try to see if you can find Salem, S-A-L-E-M. Yeah. And immediately to the west or immediately to your left, you'll see Valley of Selva. Now that, you know where we are right here? This is 4,000 years ago. 
This is outside of Jerusalem because Melchizedek, king of Salem, he is the earliest king of the city will become known as Jerusalem. So the valley of uh, the, the valley of Selva is right outside of immediately to the west of Jerusalem. Remember, Jerusalem is the high on a high mountain, twenty five hundred feet above sea level. But all around Jerusalem are these deep valleys, and so it's one of these valleys. So the king of Sodom comes to meet Abraham, and Melchizedek, verse eighteen, king of Salem brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God, the Most High. We'll stop there for a minute. So you have two people greeting Abram as he's making his way back to home, to his tent, where he's pitched his tent. One is the king of Sodom. The other is the king of Salem. And Abraham is going to be faced with a very significant choice here. Now, isn't it interesting that it describes in verse 18 Melchizedek, a priest of God the Most High? Because when you read Genesis 12, 13, 14, you get the impression that the only believer on planet Earth is Melchizedek, or is Abram. Nobody else is following the true God. That's not true. All the Bible is doing is focusing on this man, Abram, whom God is choosing to bless with his covenant promise. Melchizedek is a priest of the Most High God. He worships the one true God. He leads sacrifice. Who else is around at the time of Abraham? Job. Job is a contemporary of Abraham. So it would be incorrect to assume from the reading of, of this part of God's word that Abraham's the only believer on planet Earth. That's not, that's not the right way to look at it. But Melchizedek becomes important because, number one, of his name, number two, what he's king of, and number three, why he is important in Scripture. And that's what I want to talk about now. All right, now, did I lose you there, or are you still with me? Yeah, uh, Rob. I, I just had the impression that Abraham was cited as the earliest believe, true believer. That'd be that kind of up that would, not, that would not be correct, in my view. That's, I mean, that's not the correct way to think about it. The, the correct, I don't mean so bold, the correct way to think about it, but the way the Bible presents it is God chooses Abraham as a channel of his blessing. He could have chosen others. I mean, because like I'm trying to show here, there were many other people that were followers of the one true God. But Abram lives in Ur. The Chaldees, one of the most pagan cities on planet Earth at that time. And out of that, God chooses him. I mean, it's just another illustration of God's sovereignty, but also of God's grace. Abram, why did God choose Abram? It doesn't explain why. As a matter of fact, it doesn't make sense he would choose him. He's way over in Mesopotamia, one of the most pagan parts of the planet Earth. Why would you? God has the right to do whatever he wants. But it is, Abram becomes, because of that situation, where he came from and what God asked him to do, Abram becomes the great paradigm of faith. There is no reason, one, for God's choice of Abram, or two, why Abram would, would obey God, but he chose to obey him. His faith was great. And here again, you see this example of Abram's faith in how he responds to the king of Sodom 
and how he responds to the king of Melchizedek, the king of Salem. Now, I want you to notice something about verse 19. Actually, it's verse 19 and 20. Melchizedek, this mysterious king of Salem, blessed him. This is what he said. Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor. Some of your translations might have creator of heaven and earth. And be blessed be God most high. He has delivered your enemies into your hand. Now, the term most high, I don't usually do this, but it's, it's really important that you be a little bit exposed to some of this. In Hebrew, is El Elyon. It's one of the numerous titles for God in the Old Testament. And so what, what, uh, what Melchizedek is using here he doesn't see, say, blessed be God, excuse me, blessed be Abram by Yahweh. He doesn't say that. Blessed be Abram by Elohim. He doesn't say that. Blessed be Abram by El Shaddai, God, the host of the armies of heaven. He chooses El El Yon. It's, it's one of the remarkable focus points of God's titles on his sovereignty, his lordship. So when he says, blessed be Abraham by God most high, blessed be Abraham by God, the sovereign one of the universe. He's not only the sovereign one of the universe, he's the possessor or creator of heaven and earth. So what Melchizedek is doing in his blessing is tying God's sovereignty with God as creator. Very significant. And blessed be the God most high, El Elyon, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. So Melchizedek, the king of Salem, he was identified in the previous verse as the priest of God El Elyon, of El Elyon. So it's just a remarkable, this mysterious guy, he comes out of nowhere. Abram's moving south, and all of a sudden Melchizedek shows up. The priest of, did, did Abram know who he was? We don't know. Did Abraham understand the significance of who he is? We don't know. But his response to him is, Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. That becomes really important. You understand what that means, don't you? A tenth of all the loot that he got from Ketelelomer goes to Melchizedek, which goes into the, into the treasury at Salem. The book of Hebrews does a lot with this. Because the book of Hebrews in chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7 says Jesus is our high priest. Do you remember that? Mm -hmm. Jesus is our high priest. But Jesus is our high priest. That means he intercedes for us. That means he's the representative between us and God. It's the one who has accomplished what needs to be accomplished for our redemption through, uh, uh, through the Jesus. But Jesus is a high priest after a different order. He's not a high priest after the order of Aaron, the Levites. That's not who he is. He is a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. After the order of Melchizedek. Okay. Now that is really, really, really important. Because Melchizedek, we read that in verse 18. 
Melchizedek is not only a king, he's a priest. Jesus is not only our king, he's our priest. The Levites were never kings. Kingship comes through the tribe of Judah. But Jesus isn't an order, a high priest after the order of the Levites, the descendants of Aaron. He is a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, who is both a king and a priest. Now that is really important. One verse, verse 18, it's one of the most important verses in the Bible because it helps us understand something about Jesus as this revelation that unfolded through the remaining books of the Bible. And then in, in chapter, uh, I should say uh, Psalm, because there aren't chapters in the Psalm, Psalms 110 it's, it's a prophetic psalm. It's the father promising things to the son. The father promised to the son, you will be a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And the book of Hebrews 5, 6, and 7 ties back to Psalm 110, says that's fulfilled in Jesus. So we're at one of those seminal thresholds in Scripture that's introducing us to somebody that, if this is the only verse we would have, you would say, oof. I think this is important, but why is it important? Because the rest of the Bible really explained why this is important. And this guy Melchizedek is really an important figure in Scripture. I mean, do we know much? We know almost nothing about him. But he blesses Abraham. And Abraham recognizes that blessing pays ties to him. And that figure of Melchizedek becomes a type for Christ, both king and priest. A uh, quick question about him. Uh, <clears throat> so he's priest of the Most High God, and he's king of the city of Salem, which um, <clears throat> would be safe to assume then that that's a community of believers in Salem. We Well, you're asking me a question I, don't, I can't answer exactly, but it would be a place where the Most High God is acknowledged and worshipped, yes. Now, whether everybody in that city would be, I, I don't know if I could answer it that way. But it is a place where absolutely God, the Most High God, Yahweh, etc., is acknowledged and worshipped, presumably sacrificed to him, and so on. Yes. Yes. You can see, again, I, this is another point that's not the main point of this, but you can see why Salem, which will soon become Jerusalem, is so important to God. It just keeps coming up. It's going to become, going to become, and it is still today, it's the most important city on planet Earth to God. Because that's where his son, you know, the Lord Jesus will come, and it's where he will be crucified, it's where his resurrection will occur, and so on. It's where the church will be born in Acts 2. It's just, Jerusalem is really important. What's the most contested city on Earth today? Jerusalem. I mean, nobody's particularly concerned about the, the territory called Beijing. Do you have any wars over Beijing? People fighting about the geography of Moscow, about the geography of Washington, D.C.? No. Jerusalem? Yes. It's the most contested piece of real estate on earth. So that's a little bit ahead of the story. But I, I just, I want you to really understand that what's happening here, it seems so innocuous, really. Abraham's defeated Keteleomer, he rescued Lot and all that. They're making their way south, and all of a sudden Melchizedek shows up. Who's this guy? We know something about him, but the New Testament unfolds a little more detail about him. But he's really an important figure.
And by the way, Melchizedek is a combination of two Greek Hebrew words. Melech, which means king, and Zedek, which means righteousness. He's the king of righteousness. So his title and his titles and his royalty, they're just really remarkable for the rest of Scripture. The king of righteousness, who is king of the city of Salem, who is also the high priest. Jesus will be king, priest, ruling from Jerusalem. Now what is he going to do with the king of Sodom? <clears throat> Verse 20. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, the God most high. By the way, notice that to the Lord, that's L-O-R-D in caps, that's Yahweh. So Yahweh and El Elyon are the same, just another title for the same. Possessor of heaven and earth, creator of heaven and earth. And I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Adnor and Eshkel and Mamre take their share. They're the people whom Abraham lived in. His, his tent was pitched where there's they, they can take a share. But King of Sodom, I will take nothing from you. Nothing. So he has a choice. Am I going to defer to the king of Sodom or the king of, Melchizedek, the king of Salem, Melchizedek? And it's really interesting because that you get the sense that the king of Sodom has a lot more in, involved in this. He wants to own Abram. He wants allegiance from Abram, and Abram will give it to him. So you have this remarkable discussion and dialogue and blessing from Melchizedek and this adamant, outright objection of anything from the king of Sodom. I don't want to owe you anything. I don't want you to in any way say, I helped Abram get this victory. Who did help Abram get this victory? God did. He says it. Melchizedek says it. He delivered your enemies into your hand. Abram, now listen, this is the, this is the important theme. I, I hope you get this. Abram is a man of courage. Abram is a man of faith. Abram is a man of courage. Abram is a man of faith. And you see the faith in how he responds to Melchizedek contra how he responds to the king of Sodom. His trust is in God, not Sodom. And he defers to that. He recognizes that as he responds properly, I suppose you could say, to the, um, the king of Salem, to Melchizedek. All right, now this is, uh, you have two things going on in this chapter, this narrative of this battle and all this with Ketalim and all these guys, but then more importantly, this situation with Melchizedek. So questions or comments, everybody with me? Yeah, Jim. A lot is still of Abram at this point. That's correct. And a lot is beholden to some extent, I suppose, to the king of Sodom, that's the area he settled in. That's correct. That's where his wealth, it must have been a great object lesson for Lot. It should have been an object lesson for him. <laughs> but the, as you'll see later in 1819, he didn't learn the lesson. No, not at all. That's, that's the problem with Lot. That's right. That's a great way to put it. It should have been an object lesson for Lot. He should have seen 
Uh, but there's no evidence, of course, that he did. Okay, John. Well, uh, it's kind of interesting that um, Abram gave a tenth of everything uh -huh. to Melchizedek, Melchizedek, because that was actually part of the king of Sodom's stuff that was going to be given back to him, don't you think? And so he must have recognized Melchizedek as, as being more of a priest than a king. And Who's the he, Abram? Yeah. Yes, absolutely. That's yeah. absolutely right. That's right. That's right. So no, that that's right. What? How the author of the book of Hebrews deals with this is really interesting. I'm going to lose some of you here. I, I know I will, but he says, you know, it's really remarkable. Abram, even in a very real sense, Levi paid tribute to Melchizedek too, because Levi was in the loins of Abraham. You understand what he means by that? Because remember, Abraham gives birth to Isaac and Isaac to Jacob and Jacob to Levi. So he's saying even Levi is deferring to Melchizedek, which shows that Melchizedek is greater than Levi because Levi was in the loins of Abraham. Do you follow that? <laughs> Trying to show the superiority of the Melchizedekian priesthood, who is both king and priest, which is what Jesus says. That's why the author of the Hebrew, book of Hebrews says Jesus is a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, not Levi. Point, Melchizedekian priesthood is superior to the Levitical priesthood, which is really interesting. Is there any, any reference, I didn't see any reference that the um, king of Sodom had any fellowship or worship with God? Not, none at all. No, that's, you're correct. We are to conclude that there was no deference to the one true God from the king of Sodom at all. No, not at all. All right, now, chapter 15 is extremely important. Of course, I say that about almost every chapter. But chapter 15 is really, really important. Because here, this chapter is where God makes the covenant this threefold promise, an unconditional, unilateral covenant. Now, the, ver the, the first verse of chapter 15 begins with the phrase, I'm sure it's in all of your translations, after these things. What thing? What had just happened in chapter 14? After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Now, that's a metaphor. I'm your shield. You know what that means. Your protection. Your security. I'm taking care of you. Your reward would be very great. What reward? The rewards of land, seed, and blessing. So God is reminding Abram. Abram, I'm going to bless you beyond measure. Descendants as numerous as the stars of the sky, Sanders, etc. You, the nations, will be blessed. I'm going to give you this land and your descendants. Now, a number of years have gone by since God made that promise in Genesis 12. Abram is, what's the reality of Abram's life at this point? He doesn't have any children. And he keeps looking at Sarah. She's getting older and older, and older. So Abram proposes something. Oh, Lord God, 
What will you give me? For I continue childless. The heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you give me no offspring, and a member of my household, he'll be my heir. So Abram's thinking, okay, Lord, I'm still trying to get this. You're promising me seed, descendants as numerous, but I still don't even have a son, let alone descendants as numerous. So God, you must mean this, that Eliezer, my very faithful servant, he's the one. Is that right? I mean, it's remarkable, how, but you know, you got to remember he's a human being. It's been years since God made the promise. Sarah keeps getting older. She's losing some of their beauty. He's thinking she's going to give birth to it. Now, look, I must have misunderstood what the Lord was saying. Lord, you mean Eliezer to my servant, right? My chief servant, my right hand. That's who you mean, right? Verse 4. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward the heaven, number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said, So shall your offspring be. So God reminds him of what he said in Genesis 12. They took him outside. Have you, have you ever been in the Middle East? I can't remember. If you ever go to the Middle East in your night, because there isn't a lot of artificial light in, in the areas in Israel. I mean, those, the stars are so bright. Around here, you know, you might see four stars at night because there's so much artificial light. When I retired, my wife got me a telescope, which I've wanted for a long time. But, you know, the telescope isn't of much value in Omaha. you got to get outside of Omaha. you got to go out to the hills and get, you know, where it's really dark. And then you can start to see things. Well, I'm saying all that. I'm, I'm embellishing this way beyond any interest of yours. But he's just saying to them that I'm going to keep this promise. Now, verse 6 is one of those verses you should underline. Because it is used over and over again in the New Testament. And Abraham believed Yahweh. And he counted it to him as righteousness. What does that mean? This is where, this verse, this is where Abraham is justified. Or if you want to use 21st century evangelical language, this is where Abraham is saved. This is really, this is theologically, this is one of the most important verses in the Bible. It really is theologically. Because what is it saying? Here's God. Here's Abraham. Memories. Okay? And it says, he believed God and it was counted him as righteousness. Okay, what's going on here? Abraham's faith is directed toward God. God made him a series of promises. He kept telling him that. And Abraham's look, oh, my wife's getting old. Lord, you meant Eliezer, right? No, I didn't mean Eliezer. I meant your biological son. And it's just extraordinary. Abraham doesn't push back. He doesn't give him reasons why. No, you can't mean my son. My wife's too old. I'm getting old. There's no way we're going to. No, that's not what he does. It says he believed it. And so what happened was God then declared him righteous. 
So the righteousness of God becomes his righteousness. This is what we call justification. And if you look at Romans chapter 4, if you look at Romans chapter 4, Paul has declared in the first three chapters that you are justified by faith. You're declared righteous by faith. You're saved by faith, however you want to put it. Okay, <clears throat> who is the best example that this is always the way God has done it? Abram. And in Romans chapter 4, he brings Abraham to witness stand. And four times in that chapter, he quotes or alludes to Genesis 15, 6. So this is a really important verse. Because it demonstrates that this is how God has always done it. It's never by works. It's never earning it. It's never meriting it. When God says something, you believe it. You trust it. You understand it. And he responds, so this is where Abraham is justified. Now, this is really important because it means, um, it means that the relationship, I hope you'll understand this, the relationship between Yahweh and Abraham has now changed a little bit. There's now a firmness, a security, a solidness about this relationship. God has said to him again, here are the promises I'm making to you. This text tells us Abraham really embraced it now. He truly trusted that what God was saying, God was going to fulfill. That's what happens to us, too. Exactly. Exactly. You hear it, you intellectually understand it, but it will take, maybe, they tell us, the typical person has to hear the gospel clearly explained at least seven times before they respond. I had eight, seven times before they, they, they respond. So he has heard, he's heard God say it. He's acted on this. He left, or, you know, he did all these things. But here, I mean, you've got to remember, Abraham has just gone through this battle. He's just rescued Lot. He's just, he's just deferred to Melchizedek. And God says, Abraham, I'm your shield. I protect you. I just showed that. I just showed you again. I'm faithful. I'm your shield. And Abraham says, okay, Lord, yeah, my reward is going to be great. You mean Eliezer, don't you? No, I don't. I mean your son. But I don't have a son. I know that. Let's go out into get out of your tent. Let's go out and look at the sky. That's the illustration. That's the object lesson. You can't count those? That's, that is the number of descendants you're going to have. And Abraham said, wow, I believe what God is telling me. And the text says it's counted. The word counted, there's a merchant's term. It's an Excel spreadsheet term. He adds up all the data. Bottom line, imputed to him is the righteousness of God. He is now declared righteous in God's eyes. It's a, it's a, it's a remarkable verse. It is used again and again and again in the Bible as the paradigm of faith which produces the righteousness of God. Somebody's hands up. Yes, a friend. Something real practical about this, because after we become Christians, we walk in faith. We receive Christ through faith, and through that faith, we are made righteous uh, by reason of faith. And along the way, as God leads us in different areas, I mean, we've got different professions around this table, and and God is working in our lives. It's not like we made a decision now we're just put out to the pasture. And, and when we die, then we'll see God and we'll be in heaven and we'll see Christ and so forth. But it's an ongoing, living, practical desire to know that we're on God's will and God's path, it seems to me. And this is what Abraham is saying. Am I, am I getting... 
you know, did I get this wrong or would you please confirm to me that I'm doing what you asked me to do and this will produce your promise to me or your leading if, if you know, different men are, are encouraged to do certain things in the name of the Lord and for the Lord that sometimes get discouraged I mean, we know that there are institutions that go through valleys and so forth. And, you know, we still walk in faith, even though circumstances would have it that it doesn't look like it's going to happen as God said it would. Well, yeah, uh, this is the great story of Abram, as well as through many of the heroes of the faith throughout the Bible. He's walking with God. His faith and trust in God is deepening as each event, but it's often um, characterized by a series of doubt or a series of questions. And here is one of those points in Abram's life. He hears what God is saying. He's been responding to God. But here is where it becomes permanent for him. I mean, this is now, this is the threshold that he's crossed. There's no turning back now with God. He believes truly what God has said to him. That God is going to keep his promise. You see, for all of us, uh, you begin, um, you start with <coughs> hearing the gospel, the, the clear teaching of what Christ did. And you, you hear it, okay, that sounds good. You hear it, you, and you finally you get to the point where, this really is about me. He died on the cross and was resurrected for me to take care of my sin problem, take care of all the dysfunction, etc. of my life. Now you begin that walk. But that walk with God, it's the position, we've talked about this many times in this class, the position of who you are in Christ. That's your new identity. But now your walk starts to change because this is your identity. Now your walk, because you are now a new creation in Christ. What does that mean? You're going to start walking with me, Right? And those valleys and mountain peaks of life are no different for the believer. The difference for the believer is now God is walking with you through those, and each one of those your faith is strengthening. And there's constant, it's, you're, you're, it's, you're constantly peppered, your life is peppered with periods of doubt. God, do you, are you really in this? You know, and I, sometimes I wake up and I, I hear the news or, you know, you're, some things happen in your family. You think, oh, my God, God. Now, Lord, you still are in control, right? This didn't slip up on your blind side. This didn't catch you off guard, did it, Lord? It sure seems like it did. And, you know, that you see that in the Psalms. All the psalmist is constantly overwhelmed by events, and he doubts, and he hurls accusations at God. Now, Abram isn't hearing, hearing an accusation of God, but he's got pretty significant doubt. You, did you mean Eliezer? No, I meant your biological son. And, and it, it's just, it's amazing. It's amazing, verse 6. He believed God. He really believed what God was saying to him. But God's not done. God's going to do something else now. Because this threshold is crossed, God is going to say, okay, Abraham, I want to, I want to show you something. This promise isn't binding on you. This promise is binding on me. This is, these are two important modifiers. This illustrates this is an unconditional, 
unilateral covenant. This is not conditioned on Abram's obedience. And it's not made bilaterally. It's God unconditionally and unilaterally making this promise. And we know that because of what happens in verse 7 through the end of the chapter. Now I want to tell you, I want to tell you about this and we're going to read it. Because this sounds bizarre to us. In the ancient Near Eastern world, we have many, many examples of this in extra-biblical material, all kinds of, of, uh, of uh, pieces of, uh, of uh, sandstone that have been baked hard, these, 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 all these kind of archaeological findings of many, many illustrations of what is called a cutting of a covenant. It's called the cutting of a covenant. Now, as far as we can determine, it originated in Acadia the, from where Abraham was. Acadia is the very southern part of the Mesopotamia Valley. But anyway, the, that's not the point. What would they do? Okay, let's suppose Fred and Joel, two men in business, they make an agreement. Okay? And they make an agreement. Instead of bringing in 17 lawyers and all kinds of negotiations with a 116-page document, what they would do is they'd take a, a, a series of animals and they would cut them in half. And would lay the one half on this side and another half on this side. And when that is done, then they would both hold, take their arms together, and they would walk between these two animals that have been, uh, not two, these animals have been cut in two. There's usually three or four of them. You, you understand what I just said? Can you get the mind picture of what I just said? You would take these animals, cut them in half, lay one half here, one half here. You'd have three or four animals. And you'd take your, your arms together and you'd walk between. What are you saying? We promise to keep this covenant. And if we do not keep it, may we become like these animals. Hmm. It's called cutting a covenant. It's a very common practice in the ancient world. So what God is going to do, he's going to give Abraham some very specific instructions. This is what I want you to do. And he's going to put Abraham into a sleep. And Abraham is going to see, he's going to see the image of God walking between these dead animals. What does that mean? Abraham and God don't walk between those two animals together. God walks through it. What does that mean? It's unconditional and it's unilateral. It is binding on God. It is not conditioned on Abraham's obedience. It isn't conditioned on all the descendants of Abraham. It's conditioned on one thing. I made a promise to you and I will keep it. Why did God choose to do it at this point in Abraham's life? Because of verse 6. The relationship between God and Abraham has just changed. It is now solid. It's clear. Abraham's righteous. He's God's man. Now God says to him, I'm going to make you a promise as I've made it again, but I'm going to cut this. It's a covenant promise. It's an unconditional promise. It's not conditioned on you. And it's not bilateral. We're not walking between this together. I'm walking in it. It's binding on me. Now, that is really, really important because the rest of the Old Testament, this is tested. And God, God will discipline his people Israel. He will even send them into exile for 70 years. What does he say? I'm going to bring them back. Why? And he quotes the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant is the key to God's relationship with the Jewish people. He made a promise. And to me, quite frankly, if God does not keep his promise to Abraham's descendants, how do I know he's going to keep it to me? 
You follow me? So this, this promise that God has made to Abraham and how this covenant is cut means this thing is binding on God. And so God will remain faithful to this covenant promise. And that's why, you know, I don't know, it's been a long time since we studied that, but if you study the material associated with the end time events, the children of Israel are really important, what God's going to do as he brings history to an end, because he's going to keep the promises he made. It's really amazing. That's why there's a book that was published called Covenant <laughs> People, which tells this entire story and why it is so important to understand human history. Um, I had a Jewish friend that I was talking to the other day, and we, I, I told, told him that you know, eventually I'm going to win into Christ. And he said, well, he said, Fred, you know, our promise was written in stone uh, as a Jewish people. And can you amplify your comment on the promise that was made to the Jewish people and how Christ fits into that so that that is understood by Jewish people that that yes they are blessed and to to them the promise was made but it's not self-contained there's more to it than the promise the promise leads to perhaps something like Christ well <laughs> that is the the part of the promise of the three part promise oh, I erased it no, sorry the part of the three part promise is blessing in you, all the nations will be blessed. <clears throat> what does that mean? Well, the New Testament, the Old Testament does too, but the New Testament really helps us to understand that. But in the Old Testament, the blessing is you are my people, you are to represent me to be a blessing to all people. Now, they lived in a tough neighborhood, as we've talked before, polytheist, animist, and they're to represent the one true God. And they did that to some extent, but a lot of times they didn't do a very good job of it. But out of that covenant promise through the blessing is there's going to be a Messiah, a Messiah in Hebrew, an anointed one. And that's why the lineage of David is so important, because he'll be the king. The king will be the key to blessing. Is it the Davidic king? No. Is it Solomon? No. It certainly isn't any of the descendants of Solomon, if you know what happens to the king that's divided. So you leave the Old Testament with all these promises in Jeremiah, in Isaiah, and the 12 minor prophets, all these great promises about one who's going to redeem Israel. You leave the Old Testament, who is it? Well, it's Messiah. It's the anointed one of God. You leave the Old Testament, you don't know who it is. What's the first verse in the New Testament? This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, son of Abraham, son of David. That's why the typical Orthodox Jew today is still looking for Messiah. They're still, they, the Messiah for them hasn't come. Jesus is not the Messiah. Well, who is he? he? Well, in the 19th century, they finally settled, okay, Jesus was a rabbi. I mean, that's what they say. He's a rabbi. He's a teacher, but he's not the Messiah. And I remember a, a friend of mine I went to seminary with, um, he and was in St. Louis for a while ministering uh, to Jewish people. He had a luncheon every Tuesday. But Jewish, uh, St. Louis is a pretty heavy Jewish city, I don't know if you know that. But, and uh, it was, I, I was with him a couple of times. The top people of St. Louis come. There was one lady who said to Tim, Jesus is not Messiah. When Messiah comes, he will heal the sick, he will raise the dead, he will give sight to the blind, all these things. And Tim would say, but that's what Jesus did. All the signs, the messianic signs that the Old Testament said, look for the Messiah you will know by these signs. That's what Isaiah says. 
Jesus did all those signs. And she, her response was, well, he's not my Messiah. I mean, it was just, it was so adamant. He's not my Messiah. So Fred, in my view, and that's true for any human being, but only the Holy Spirit of God can open the heart of a Jewish person to understand that Jesus is the Messiah. Because the history of those people has been so harsh. Who were the ones that persecuted them? Christians. The most intense persecutions of Jewish people in history were Christians. The Spanish Inquisition, Christians. They're Christ killers. Wipe them out. In Russia, the pogroms of the Russian Tsar, you don't know if you know what pogroms are. The pogroms, we, if you've ever seen Fiddler on the Roof, Fiddler on the Roof, it's built around a Jewish family, but they're in one of these little villages in Russia, and the pogroms come, and they're forced out of their home. Because why? Because they're Christ killers. And a Jewish person says, don't tell me about Christianity. I know what they've done to my people. So that's why only the Holy Spirit can open the heart. That's true of any human being. Mm -hmm. But the history has been so harsh. And don't forget, the throes of Nazism were born out of Christianity. The Lutheran, only a small confessing group of Lutherans, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was one of them, rejected what Hitler was doing. The mainline churches of Germany for a period of time embraced what Hitler was doing because they were saying better Hitler than Stalin. Stalin was the atheistic communist across the border. Now, I'm getting way beyond the story, but that's, oh my goodness, it's time to stop. But that's, it is, it is I've, I've known a lot of Jewish folks. I, I went to school with two really neat guys who had come to faith in Christ, and they were ready to set the world on fire. I mean, they really were. They were both of enormously significant ministers. So that's a comment. Well, I guess we better stop. Time. The papers are shuffling. Notebooks are being closed. Bibles are being closed. It's obviously time for me to quit. So tomorrow, what I want to do is pick up with verse seven, okay? Because I want. There are two parts to this. Part one is verse seven. Part two is verse fourteen. And I mean, we're going to build everything around this. But this importance of this covenant that God cuts, it's really significant. Uh, so chapter 15 is one of those. And then, then we have 16. This great triumph in chapter 15. Then 16, where Sarah comes up and says, it ain't going to happen, Abram. <laughs> it ain't going to happen. I'm giving you Hagar. And the Arab-Israeli conflict is born in chapter 16. We'll get to that. So let's pray here. We've got to quit. Lord, the uh, importance of verse 6 of chapter 15 is, is key for so much of the rest of Scripture. It's quoted over and over and over again. You have always justified people by faith. And Abraham's the great paradigm of that. But it also uh, demonstrates, in a way, what Fred and a couple of the others ask in terms of questions, how faith is built over time. Faith first to trust you for salvation and faith to walk with you is built over time. It's something that is part of growth. It's something that is a part of, Lord, help my unbelief. I'm really wanting to believe you. This doesn't make sense. And over and over again, and with Abram, he'd heard God say that a number of times at this point. 
He believed God. You really mean this, don't you? And it changed his relationship with the living God. I trust that every man around this table has made that one decision of faith and two are now walking with you in faith. It is not always easy. It's often filled with a lot of questions, sometimes even doubts. But there's no better way to resolve the doubts than through your word, through fellowship with others, to help build that faith that you are a trustworthy, faithful, good God that always, always, always keeps your promises. And that was the issue with Abraham. So, Lord, as we go our separate ways now, help us to represent you well in both our deeds as well as in our words. We want to do this to the glory of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. See you next week.